We have a good full evening, so I'm going to get right into things. You know, we've been in this unusual series, Super Duper Bible Verses, and thank you for submitting passages of Scripture that either are of personal interest to you or that you think are in need of explanation. So, uh, I have tried to do these in the order in which you have sent them to me, but we're going to get out of the order tonight uh, for a good reason. This passage before us tonight was submitted by uh, Tracy Herrera because today, tonight, is her birthday. Uh, she couldn't be with us, but this is her birthday. So uh, a few weeks ago, she came to me. And she said, uh, I know you're trying to honor the order in which you have received these verses, but you should know on the 25th, it's my birthday, and I submitted a passage, I'm just saying. In other words, she took advantage of me, and it worked. So we're going to deal with Tracy's passage tonight. It's a very interesting one, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's in Genesis chapter 6 the first eight verses. And so let's get right into the text. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. So you remember God gave this wonderful mandate, be fruitful and multiply. That is really wonderful because what he commands us to do, he enables us to do. And so behind the mandate is this implied uh, blessing by Almighty God for humankind to do good on the earth, be fruitful and multiply. At this time in human history, people were taking it seriously, and they were popping out kids all over the place. Part of the reason for it was they lived a long time. And when you live a long time in these days, and, you know, they didn't have um, Netflix, and there wasn't much else to do, so they just produced a herd of little boogers running around, and they were just really populating the earth. And so, as is God's way between males and females, males, as is, are indicated here, got together with females, and a bunch of kids were born to them. Now, this was the situation before the flood, just to give you a frame of reference. So we're reading about a pre-flood reality at this point. And now we go to verse 2. It came about during this time that the sons of God, who are they? Well, don't tell me. I want to tell you. That's what I get paid for. So we're going to see in just a second, and I think this is why Tracy wanted us to look at this. Who are the sons of God? They, whoever they are, saw the daughters of men. Who are the daughters of men? And they saw that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. I don't want to read too much into this, but the implication of the wording is that these sons of God took... Um, daughters of men, maybe even against their will, for crying out loud. They saw them. They liked what they saw. They took them, and these were folks they chose. There's like the absence of God in all of this. This is just stuff the sons of men did. And so we're going to have to talk about who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men, and we will in just a second. But first we'll get to verse 3. In this time frame, the Lord said, 
my spirit shall not strive with man forever. That's a reality, harsh though it may be. Look, we've been conceived in sin. That's contrary to the nature of a sinless, holy deity. Nonetheless, he strives with us. He spends time with us to trying to coerce us away from our sin. He wants us to repent, to turn from it to him. And he's astoundingly patient. I like the biblical word, long-suffering. He could dispense with us. He could wipe us out. He would be justified. No, he hangs in there with us with intense patience, with a view towards turning our hearts and minds away from sin and towards him. Nevertheless, the patience and long-suffering of God has a shelf life. There comes a time when, as it says here, uh, God's spirit will no longer engage in that ministry to unrepentant sinners. He'll cease to strive with us. And so in that time, God even put a, a time-limited uh, uh, boundary on it. He said, nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So what it's saying here is God is going to put up with sinful man, uh, people on the run from God, for 120 years. And then if they do not repent and turn to him, there will be universal judgment called the flood. Now, because God desires not to judge, but to redeem and to forgive, that's one of the reasons why he's giving these people plenty of time, but not an indefinite period of time. Now, I don't want to spook you out a little bit but too much, but that applies to us today, too. Don't mess with God. You know how the Bible says today is the day of salvation? Why wait for tomorrow if you know what business you have to transact with the Savior now? You may not get tomorrow. So God's um, ministration was limited in that day, and it is limited in terms of time even today. In that day, 120 years. Now we move to verse 4. The Nephilim, who in the world are they? We're told whoever they are, they were on the earth in those days. But not just those days, also after those days. So I think that implies the Nephilim, whoever they are, were on the earth pre-flood and post-flood. That's what I think. Well, uh, they, they were on the earth when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men. And of course, that's a euphemism for having sexual relations. Whoever the sons of God are had sexual relationship with those who are the daughters of men. And the Nephilim were around at the time. In fact, they bore children to them. Uh, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now that's just about all we know about the Nephilim. Because they're only mentioned in scripture, as far as I could tell, in only two places. Here, and then in one other place, in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. The Israelites sent a group of spies to take the lay of the promised land. They had not yet entered into the promised land, and so a delegation of uh, folks on an espionage mission went up in the land to kind of check it out. There were 12 of them. Ten came back with a kind of negative report. They said, don't go up there. You do not want to go there. There are like big people there. In fact... In comparison to them, we were like grasshoppers. 
Now, on the basis of that, Numbers 13.33, early on in, in biblical history or Christian history, it has been suggested by a number of people that the Nephilim were giants and they were some kind of uh, unusual uh, progeny of this uh, weird coming together of the sons of God, I haven't told you who they are yet, and the daughters of men. It was a weird kind of sexual relationship, the product of which were giant-sized, unusual kids who went around uh, causing trouble for people. So not everyone believes that the giant uh, insinuation is really accurate. Some, in fact, say that when it says these were men of old, men of renown, uh, some say, no, 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 they were giant-sized with reference to their reputation for wickedness. Because the word Nephilim means the fallen ones or ones who fall upon others. So some say, no, 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 they were not literally physical giant-sized people. They were people whose reputation preceded them because they had a giant-sized evil inclination. They fell upon innocent others, and those are the Nephilim. So those are kind of the theories. And so it is said, as I mentioned, that the Nephilim were the product of the sons of God and daughters of men. And then it says in verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, on the earth. Folks, people were sinning all over the place in every way and constantly. And he, and he saw that every, every intent of the thoughts of his heart. Well, how do you think with your heart? You know, in Hebrew, there is, uh, there is no word for mind. <laughs> so when you read the word heart, it really means this. The, I know we think of the heart as the uh, sort of central station for life, but I think it's the brain. This is like the command center for everything. And so uh, their thoughts were on evil continually. God observed this. So in pre-flood days, man was intensely sinful. That's the situation. And now in verse 6, the Lord, look at this, was sorry. Unusual. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So... Does that imply that God made a mistake? Did God see all this and then say, did he scratch his head and say, oh man, if I knew then what I know now, I never would have created these people. Is that what this verse is insinuating? Is, is, is human sinfulness, was it such a surprise to God that he said, oh man, I really blew it, and now I'm just sorry that I created them. Uh, the answer to all that is no, no, a thousand times no. This is language used um, uh, as an accommodation. In, in fact, here's a good word for you to use at, at the next party you go to. This will really impress people. Anthropomorphism. I know you're dying to say it. On three, everybody say, one, two, three. Yeah, there you go. Look at that. So what does it mean? It means attributing human characteristics or emotions to God. That's what it means. 
You get a lot of that in the, in the Bible. It's God condescending to help us understand him better by using language we can relate to. So, 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 so this is an attachment of human emotions to God. No, he wasn't sorry in the sense that he didn't see our sin coming. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's to show us that he's not neutral about our sin. Think about it. The next time you're tempted to sin or me. This could help you not to do it. It really hurts our father. It doesn't make him mad. It makes his heart hurt. It makes him grieve. It makes him sorrowful, like you would if you had a child or a grandchild who's astray. Normal people don't want to beat them to death. Normal people want to hug them, love on them, weep for them, beg them to come back home. Our sin is something that affects he's non he's not a non-emotional reality. He is transcendent, I got that. But he's not so much the great beyond that he doesn't that he isn't affected by the choices we make. He's our heavenly father and it breaks his heart when we do the things contrary to his will because he knows it's not going to work out for us. That's the sense in which these words are being used here. And then it says in verse 7, the Lord said, I'm going to blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. I'm sorry that I have made them. So at this point, man's sin had become so serious that this is the course of action a very patient God has chosen to take. So here's the question. What was it in particular that caused this rather extreme response from God? We shall see as we consider this question now. Who are the sons of God who had relations with the daughters of men? So there are multiple points of view. And I've spent a lot of time looking through it. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to share with you the two principal points of view. It gets really, really complicated, and you could spend your whole life on this if you want to, but we, we don't want to because uh, I think American Idol is on tonight. Is that? I don't, I don't want to miss that. You've got to have your priorities right. So I'm just going to give you the two like main theories. Here's the first. Uh, Adam and Eve had two sons. Cain and Abel. Cain murdered his brother, Abel. But Adam and Eve had another son named Seth. Cain was a bad guy, ungodly. Seth was a good guy, godly. From the line of Cain came other ungodly folk. From the line of Seth, it is said, came a line of godly folk. So here it is said that the sons of God are men from the godly line of Seth who intermarried with the ungodly women of Cain. That's the theory. It's not outlandish because if you think about context, the prior chapters, in fact, delineated the lines of descent between uh, Cain and Seth. But I just don't buy that. And you could. It's a free country. What did one commentator write? He said... This stuff is not justification for starting a new church. <laughs> so, so if you differ or we differ from one another, come on. 
This is just an in-house discussion. Your salvation does not depend upon it. It's in the Bible, so we'll look at it. But please don't part ways because we see things differently. But I don't buy this one. I mean, how could we say that all the men of the line of Seth, all of them were godly, and all the women in the line of Cain were ungodly? I just don't get it. Furthermore, if all the men in the line of Seth were godly, then why did all the men in the line of Seth take ungodly women from the line of Cain? Wouldn't that invalidate their godliness? So I don't buy that one. Here's the second view. It's that the sons of God are fallen angels. What's another name for fallen angels? Yeah, demons. So the sons of God are demons, and the daughters of men are human women. This is a juicy text, is it not? Holy moly. Uh, how do people get to this position? Well, in the Old Testament, the phrase sons of God is used almost exclusively of angelic beings. I know we are sons and daughters of God. I'm not talking about New Testament. In the Old Testament, you'll see, you'll see incidents of this phrase in Job, for instance. It's a reference to angels, not to humans. So, so that, that kind of supports this theory that the sons of God were, in fact, fallen angels. Not only that, uh, various New Testament passages seem to support that point of view. So, for instance, I'll, I'll share this one with you, Second Peter uh, chapter uh, 2, verses 4, and then we'll get to verse 5. If God didn't spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, could, can you see that? text has taken us back uh, sort of to the time of the text we're reading now, days of Noah, uh, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So Peter is talking to us of the judgment of God that goes way back uh, in Noah's day upon angels. Therefore, some surmise, ah, it's a judgment on the sons of God who in fact are demons, fallen angels, who had relations with women. Uh, furthermore, uh, you have this passage of Scripture. It's Jude. How many chapters are in Jude? Anybody know? Yeah, there's only one. So, so it's Jude verses 6 and 7 I'll, I'll share with you. And angels who did not keep their own domain. See, this is referring to angels. They didn't keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode... He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality. So in, in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know what that's all about. There was tremendous uh, perverted sexual sin being committed. And in the same way, a parallel is being drawn uh, uh, that went back to angels in, in Noah's day. So in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, that's where people get the idea, ah, it's angels with women. 
are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. They left their domain and proper abode. They indulged in gross immorality. They went after strange flesh, which literally means flesh of another kind. So those who hold to this theory that the sons of God were fallen angels say, yeah, see, this supports it. They went after flesh of another kind. So... That's kind of the theory. But then some say, no, 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 no. Because of this verse of scripture in the Gospel of Matthew. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So people say, what are you talking about? Angels don't marry. Yeah, but I think, I think that's not a good argument. Uh, this verse is talking about angels where? In heaven. However, in the Genesis passage, we're talking about angels who abandoned heaven, who fell to earth following Satan, their leader, and in an exercise of unbridled pride, abandoned heaven in order to come to earth. So it, 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 it's not talking about the angels in heaven. It's talking about the fallen angels here. So I don't really, I don't really, I don't really buy that. Okay, so... Those are the theories. You choose your poison. But I think this is a bigger question. Why in the world would Satan and his demons have worked out this plan to begin with? Some say it wasn't actually uh, fallen angels. It was demons who possessed men. And then the men had sex with the daughters of women. However you look at it, it's still attributed to Satan. Why? Why would he come up with this plan? What is the payoff for Satan? I'll tell you what it is because I, I believe Satan is quite a student of the Bible. I, I don't know if you knew this. He really knows Scripture, which shows you that knowing Scripture is not enough. You sort of have to apply it. Satan knows it, but didn't apply it. As a result, I think he knows this verse, which is the first verse in the Bible introducing to us hope in a coming Messiah. Look at it. And I, God is speaking, will put enmity between you. That's the, the serpent, remember? That's, that's Satan's vehicle. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, Eve, and between your seed and her seed. He, her seed, the seed of the woman is the he. He shall bruise you on the head. He, whoever he is, is going to afflict, if it's a head wound, it's a mortal wound, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That is an early reference, in my opinion, and many others, to the crucifixion. Jesus suffered and died on the crucifixion, but up from the grave he arose. So here you're introduced to the first verse, uh, giving us messianic hope. And Satan knew this verse. He knew that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was destined to come through the seed of woman. So Satan, evil but smart, Satan says, I know what I can do. If I could mess up the line of descent, if I could just interfere in some weird and perverse way with the seed of woman, maybe I can keep the Messiah from coming. 
Therefore, I'll send my demons into women and they'll produce this crazy, perverted monster race of who knows what and will so impurify the uh, progressive line of Messiah. Maybe I can keep that uh, terrifying reality, it is to Satan, from happening. I think that's what is behind all of what we're reading here. Satan knew from this verse that through the seed of woman, God was going to bring forth a Messiah who would destroy him and his works. And so what we have been reading in Genesis 6 is Satan's desperate attempt to interfere with the messianic line early on in human history. And to me, that explains why the severity of God's judgment the flood judgment, universal. I think it's God saying, I'm going to start anew with Noah because Satan has made an attempt to corrupt the potential line of the Messiah. So the flood was not only God's way of judging human sin, it also was God's way of fulfilling his promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to bring salvation to the world through the seed of the woman. Now Satan, folks, almost succeeded. The race was so polluted in that day that God found it necessary to start again with Noah and his sons and to imprison the demons that did this so that they would not do it again. Now, I want to close before we move on to the next phase of what we're going to do this evening um, with one final verse requested by Tracy. It's Genesis 6, verse 8. But Noah, see, you can, it's 10 words. You could read it too fast. Just the first verse is a hopeful uh, word. It's essentially saying you see all this crazy stuff that's going on, there's an alternative. You read about all of that and you know, demons and sex and Nephilim and all this stuff but the insertion of the word but says God is sovereign God is in control, he's redemptive he can get us out of this mess but Noah found favor does your bible say earned favor if it does you you really need a new bible that is just not a good bible he didn't earn favor he found it why didn't he earn it because noah was a sinner like everybody else in his neighborhood so are you me too it wasn't just the people in genesis 6 who had a sin problem good night we were conceived in sin noah uh, was totally depraved just like everybody was. And maybe his sin had not yet reached quite the potential of the others, but there it was. But he found, he didn't earn it. How do you earn favor with God? Tell me. How much do you have to do to get the favor of an unapproachably holy God who is perfect in all of his ways? No, no, no. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Folks, that's a hint of the gospel in the Old Testament right there. He was as much a sinner as his contemporaries, yet found God's grace and was redeemed. Which tells me, folks, in the midst of society, evil though it may be, Noah's and ours. I think ours is increasingly coming to be overwhelmed 
by not ordinary sin, but now even extraordinary sin. And what's really extraordinary is that there's a growing number of people who refuse any longer to call sin, sin. It's just choice. Our day uh, is really competing with the degree and intensity of sin that existed uh, before the flood. But in the midst of societal sin, whether it be in Noah's day or ours, there's always the capacity to find God's favor. That's the hopeful message to me of this text. No matter how terrible might be the sin around you, no matter how terrible may be the sin, get this, in you, doesn't matter. You can still find God's grace. How? By turning to the preserved, protected seed of woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. Noah escaped the wrath of God by finding the grace of God. Have you? Have you found the grace of God? Do you have his favor? Yes or no? There's, there's no in-between. If it's yes, praise the Lord, the Redeemer who saved you. If it's no, let's talk. Why not? I'd like to hear your argument for no. I'd like to hear. This is such a serious decision. Undoubtedly, you've thought about it, and there must be some justification for your refusal to accept the grace of Almighty God through Jesus' his Son. I would just love to hear what your position is. That being the case, uh, at the end of our service, why don't you tap me on the shoulder? Let's set up a time uh, whereby we can pull off the side and just talk about all this. I would just love to hear your point of view, and I'd, I'd love for you to give me a chance to share mine. Lord Jesus Christ, I don't think we'd even be able to call upon your name if... The Father didn't intervene and make sure Satan's ploy came to naught. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming at great cost. And it was a premeditated coming, wasn't it, Lord? It wasn't an afterthought. You're not good on impulse. You're good by nature. Thank you so much for coming, again, at great personal expense. Uh, so as to so as to bless us unworthy ones with favor and grace. Thank you, O oh God, for bearing the burden of our sin and for transferring to us instead your righteousness. Wow, what a transfer. Oh God in heaven, we're so grateful. Now we don't understand fully Genesis 6. It's bigger than we are. But we do understand your intent to redeem those of us who stand sorely in need of redemption. As in Noah's day, Lord Jesus, be gracious to the ones even here tonight who stand in need of your forgiveness. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.